Welcome to the Journey of a Christian Dad podcast. I'm your host, Dan Lewis. Who is the spiritual leader of your family? Is it you, your pastor, your spouse, the media? Do you know? I did. And sadly, no one was taking responsibility to lead our family. Well, friends, someone needs to take that job, and that man is you. You may not feel qualified, and some days I don't. With the help of God and a community of dads helping each other on their journey, you can be the leader your family deserves. We welcome you to the Journey of the Christian Dad podcast. All right, everybody, we have got a fantastic show up for you today, and we'll kick it off with the Apple Podcast Review of the Week. So this week, it's titled Podcast with Vaughn. So going through the valley of life right now, and I heard a quote on the podcast with Vaughn, don't make too much of the victories and don't make too much of the defeats. Focus on the daily critical tasks that produce success and excellence. This podcast has helped me redefine the daily critical tasks. I need to focus more on my faith, family, and fitness. And this podcast has helped me down that path. Keep up the good work. Much appreciated. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate Mike Lynn. Thank you very much for the podcast review of the week. We appreciate it. So let's get on with the show. So today we got a fantastic guest with us. I just got to see him speak live here in St. Louis, Missouri, and uh, it was a wonderful event. So rather than go through all the different things that that Jay Warner Wallace, or as I'll call him from here on out, Jim does cold case. Christianity is a book that is just knocking my socks off. Jim has a a background in being a cold case homicide detective. And he took that logic and applied it to whether Christ went to heaven or not. We'll just dive right into it. We'll talk about that and a bunch of other things. Welcome to the podcast, Jim. Thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Looking forward to it. I've, I've just loved the fact that you've come into my awareness I've heard of you for a while. And then with you coming to St. Louis, I'm like, I got to dive in. And it seemed like you kind of had the same thing with Christ. So once you got a whiff of it and decided to put your detective skills to work. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what happened. I think for the most part, I remember hearing early on a quote from C.S. Lewis that said, Hey, if this is um, not true, then it's of no importance. If it's true though, it's of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. So it's either false or it's true. And I knew if it was true, I was going to jump in with both feet uh, and commit myself to it. So yeah, it makes a difference. This is the kind of truth that ought to mobilize you, that ought to move you to act. Yes. And I agree with you. It's either mm-hmm. not important at all or the, the most important right. thing. And right. when as guys, we're, we have a question posed to us, hey, what about your kids? Are they going to heaven? Yeah. I mean, I think that most of us, if we weren't even concerned, and that is in some way really how we first got interested. My wife was somebody who thought, well, should we teach something about spiritual issues to our kids? And I was not really raised that way. So I didn't think much of it. I didn't, it was okay with me if we did, you know, but, but that was kind of what started us even attending a church to begin with. And I was prepared to go as a non-believer uh, because I, my dad had done that for years with his second marriage. And um, so I, I knew I kind of from watching him that it was possible to be an atheist, but also honor your family and honor your wife if she wanted to go. So I was happy to go that way. The pastor did kind of provoke me to looking a little bit deeper just because of the way he described Jesus. So that's what started me even, that's why I bought a Bible. And I was about 35 when that happened. So I guess in some ways, the concern about how to answer that question um, for your kids is what's got me started. 
That's funny that it came around about that age for you, because somewhere around 37, 38, most guys start to run into some problems and start questioning life and wondering, you know, if they're going to just keep running the same play for the rest of their life and, you know, well, drudgery you, and boredom. I, so, and, and for me, Dan, I wasn't even, it, I, I never had that kind of feeling ever. I've never had that notion in my head my entire life. I think part of it is because, so I wasn't hitting a crisis. I had a great marriage, great job great kids, great family, great opportunities. And maybe a part of that for me was that uh, law enforcement is different in the sense that if you work in an agency, you are liable to go through six or seven careers within your one career. He'll spend some time on patrol. Then I was in SWAT for three years. I worked a gang detail. I worked undercover for four years. I worked robbery homicide. I worked cold case homicides. And I did all of that in the span of one career. So I always felt like, you know, I was never bored. I never hit a, I mean, I never hit a, a moment where I said, what am I here for? You know, what's this all about? Never had problems in our marriage. For me, it just struck me as so plainly and demonstrably true by the time I investigated it that I just thought, okay, if it's true, again, it's of infinite importance. If it's not true, it's of no importance. So that was really the only, like, I know that for a lot of people, you're right. I mean, it's not just that they might hit a midlife crisis or they might hit a crisis of meaning or a crisis of purpose. There's lots of folks who hit the bottom. I mean, they, they, they have nowhere to look but up because they're either uh, battling with addiction or they're battling with, you know, they're fine, whatever it, the crisis they're in. And I think that for a lot of people, if you aren't the kind of person who's willing to look at the evidence as neutrally as I did, I think God works in other ways too. And one of those ways is to strip you of the things that you were putting in place of him to begin with and then see if you'll start looking for him. But that was not, you know, my, so I always think I've got a pretty lame testimony in the sense that I, I, I get to talk around the country with people like, like Daryl Strawberry. Yeah. Just had an event together uh, in, in Seattle. And, and I can tell you that when I listen to his story, the crash and burn that he would tell you he went through is pretty powerful. I think a lot of people hear those kinds of stories and they go, wow, if God has the power to do that in the life of Daryl Strawberry, what could he do for me? Um, but that was just not my journey. And I used to always think, man, this is a lame. If you ask me to speak about this, you're going to be underwhelmed because I just don't think I have that kind of dramatic conversion story. But for a lot of us, it comes down to, do you care about the truth? But the problem is, is sometimes you don't look for a savior until you, you know you need one. And, and I, I did just the opposite way. I learned about a savior and then discovered that I needed one because I trusted what the scripture was saying about me in addition to what it was saying about Jesus. So I kind of came at it backwards, I think. So from the investigator in you, when you started applying that to what you were looking at, where'd you start? And tell us about some of the different ones, if you would. Well, I mean, I, I started, uh, we didn't even talk about this when I saw him in St. Louis, but I started because I was reading through the gospels to kind of glean out the red letters to see what was so special about Jesus. This pastor sure made him sound special. So I started to read through there to see what was, what was so smart about the words of Jesus and wasn't quite, I mean, I knew I had a kind of a cultural sense of Christianity and that I knew there were these things called gospels. And I had never though, like opened one and read it. Um, so when I did that, I realized, oh, these are actually people want us to believe that these events occurred roughly in the sequence that they are described in the gospels, as if they are some credible record of ancient history. And I thought, well, okay, so that's, that gave me a first way in because I thought, okay, if that's the case, 
if people think this is real and the people who wrote this are wanting me to believe it as history that actually occurred on planet earth well that basically it's like when you work a cold case and some witness testifies or, or describes the event to a detective it never gets to trial then that witness dies the detective dies now we're 35 years after the fact and we're trying to piece it together we have a report but we have no access to that witness anymore and there are some confusing things in the report i can't resolve and I have no access to the detective to ask, well, why didn't you ask this additional question? Like, why didn't you clarify this? Like, you probably didn't think it needed clarification at the time, but now 35 years later, it does. Like, I don't see, I'm not thinking what you're thinking. So can you tell me why you didn't ask that question or why you just accepted that claim without testing it? But you don't have access to those kinds of things in cold cases. And so I just took that approach that I applied to cold cases and I applied it to the gospels to see and, and it really comes down to what are the characteristics of eyewitness, reliable eyewitness testimony. And we have a criteria for that. And ju judges actually instruct jurors. There are jury instructions in every state on how jurors are to evaluate eyewitnesses. I just took that template and I applied it to the gospels. You know, number one, were they actually there to see what they said they saw? That's the first test of an eyewitness. Are you even... Um, a competent eye are you even able are you you're really there but the number two is can you be corroborated in some way number three is have you been honest and accurate over time without changing your story and number four is do you possess some bias that would cause you to lie some motive so that's the four criteria that i applied to the gospels and as i applied it you know they pass now are there differences between the gospels and open questions caused by the gospel yeah but that's true of every set of eyewitnesses, and that didn't really deter me. The question is, can, are these resolvable um, variations between the accounts, and how might I explain the variances? And so when I was able to kind of work through the text, I was convinced it was telling me something true about Jesus. And that was the first step in trusting it to tell me something true about me. Wow. I, it sounds like with the investigation, then you just had the courage to, to plow forward as opposed to fight it. Well, I mean, I was, I was not like, I've got a good friend named Lee Strobel who wrote The Case for Christ and The Case for Faith, Case for Creator. Uh, he had an entire series of books and he was an investigative journalist. And I know when he, his wife became a Christian, it almost irritated him or he wanted to prove her wrong. And so he was adamantly against it. I had a, an actually a, a much more sarcastic view as a detective, as a police officer who was an atheist. I just thought it was so stupid. There was no point in like, why would, you wouldn't spend a lot of time um investigating you know the easter bunny because you would just think that's just what's real investigate this is fiction it's clearly fiction it doesn't need any investigation to know that it's fiction and that's how i kind of viewed the story of jesus of nazareth um so i just didn't have any so i was i was not against it or for it i didn't even think it was worthy of my time but here's what i did think the, the, the first pastor who talked about Jesus that I had listened to described him as smart. Like there was some wisdom in the words of Jesus. Well, look, if you've ever like worked as a detective, you know, there are some wisdom. There's some wisdom in the words of Sherlock Holmes, even though you may not be a real character, right? So you could like fictional characters, if they got good authors, will often be the source of, of wisdom. So I thought, okay, I, I'm more than happy to examine the wisdom of Jesus as written by some ancient sage who is putting these words in Jesus's mouth. And that's how I got started. So I didn't look at it at first like I was trying to prove it or disprove it. 
I just thought, what, what's so wise about with Jesus? Now, as I read it, and I saw that it certainly, well, here's what I saw immediately. There were differences between the accounts. If you look at the resurrection week under Mark and compare it to the resurrection week under Luke or John or Matthew, you'll see differences. And that actually is what provoked me to study it, because those are exactly the level and kinds of differences you see in eyewitness testimony when you're working a homicide. So I thought, wow, you know, if I'm going to lie about this, I probably would not have put these difficult variances within the text because it would right away raise an alarm that this isn't true. On the other hand, this is exactly what we see when we get five or six witnesses who see the same event. And then they tell you about it, that you have to, you have to kind of reconcile with all the differences. Defense attorneys love this, by the way. So uh, <laughs> for me, it, it was very much the same process of how can I, is these, are these reconcilable in a way that would be common to reliable eyewitnesses? And that's where I kind of got started. What about, I've heard you talk conspiracy theory. I've heard you talk about apostles themselves and the 500 and uh, some of these hurdles that you've got to get past in order to, you know, right. not have Jesus be real. Yeah. I mean, lots of people will argue there's alternative ways of explaining this. You know, I mean, there's people out there who do not believe that Jesus actually lived at all. They believe he is a reconstruction of prior mythologies all that bear some modest similarity to Jesus. And so we have these myth writers who kind of come in and they collectively gather all the variant details of every pagan mythology that preceded Jesus. And they pick and choose and create a new mythology. You know, if I was researched that I'm actually just finished a new book called person of interest that I can tell you that that is just such a ridiculous claim. But I mean, I, I definitely could understand why somebody would hold it because there are some similarities between ancient mythologies and the person of Jesus. This is not necessarily invalidate Jesus, because these are the kinds of things you would assume of your God if you're just thinking about God. You know, that he was kind of came into the world in an unusual, miraculous way. Well, that's pretty common of all ideas that humans have about the nature of God, but it would also be common if there was a real God. So this would not discredit, you know, if God does end up showing up, it doesn't discredit the fact that your notions, your kind of thoughts, deep thoughts about God when you're creating mythology would at some way reflect the nature of God. So anyway, all that to be said, but there's also the, the singular event, which is the event that it, everything hinges on, because if Jesus was just a magic, a magician of some sort, who was able to do sleight of hand, develop a, a huge following, and then he was along the way, he was also a wise magician. So he he says some clever things that are noteworthy and are recorded in those various sermons of Jesus. Well, then he's just like anybody else who might have tried something like that in the first century. But if the resurrection is true, well, that would separate Jesus from every other human who ever lived, right? Even Jesus raised some people from the grave, but those people died again. So he just temporarily resuscitated Lazarus and, yes. and the widow of Nain's son and things like that. So I think in the end, what we would say is that the resurrection is that one piece of evidence that you could examine. And if it's true, then it's a game changer and it identifies who Jesus really was. So when you look at that proposal, did Jesus rise from the grave? Was he seen by his disciples who then proclaimed this across the world and were willing to die for their claims? Well, there are, you got to figure out, well, how, how can that be? I mean, that, that is clearly what happened. Someone named Jesus was reported to have lived and died on a cross and was buried in a tomb. You can either believe that or you cannot. The tomb was empty afterwards. Clearly, if the tomb wasn't empty, no one would be talking about this because we just say, okay, another guy who died. And these folks made assertions that he had been seen after he raised from the grave. And those are either true or false. And finally, they were committed, so committed to these claims, true or false, that they were willing to die for them. 
So those are the kind of basic claims that have to be accounted for by anybody who's thinking wisely or seriously about the resurrection. And I was trying to think about the resurrection. So, you know, were they lying about this? Were they just imagining that it happened? Were they, you know, were they delusional in some way? Were they fooled by somebody maybe who stood in for Jesus? Uh, Maybe Jesus didn't really even die to begin with. Maybe he was just badly beaten and looked dead, but he wasn't really dead. So therefore he didn't rise from the grave because he was never dead to begin with. I mean, there's all kinds of ways that people try to cut the apple. And and so uh, for me, I went through all of them and I, I've probably held one or two or three of those over the years. I never thought about it much. I would have said it was just a lie, just a fictional story. It's just mythology. But as you kind of examine and learn how people conspire to tell a lie, well, you start to get some insight on how difficult that claim would actually be in history. And by the way, there's a reason why there are like six or seven atheist ways to explain away the resurrection. It's because even the non-believers know that no, no one of those explanations is all that good. So you might hold one and you'll run into a, a wall with it and say, well, then it's this. And it's number two, number three. Number, I mean, people are constantly coming up with new explanations for the evidence because they know that all the other ones don't work. Unless, of course, it actually happened. And then you have that one singular explanation from a believer's side that explains all the evidence. And then all the unbelieving kind of explanations. And the reason why there are so many is because none of them work. You only have one explanation on our side. It's the side that says, hey, these are reliable, accurate accounts of what happened and related to the resurrections. So for me, when I went through all the alternatives, the resurrection account had the least number of liabilities. The Christian account had the least number of liabilities. Yet it has a huge liability in the sense that it requires a, a miraculous event. But I mean, if, if you've really ever studied the evidence in the universe, you'll know that the science alone tells us that something extranatural happened, at least at the beginning of the universe, something outside of space, time, and matter accounted and caused the beginning of the universe, the beginning of all space, time, and matter. And the, the evidence shows us, the scientific evidence demonstrates that the universe, the beginning of the universe is the beginning of space, time, and matter. So that means it's got to have a cause. All beginnings have beginners of one nature or another. And that cause has to be very powerful and outside of space, time, and matter, because there is no space, time, and matter until the beginning of the universe. So you're already looking for an extra natural first cause of the universe. So if, if there's a if that's not an impersonal force, but is instead a personal being, then all the, uh, the miracles in the New Testament, including the resurrection um, miracle, are all what I would call small potato miracles. These are not as nearly as dramatic as everything in the universe from nothing that ends up being pretty dramatic. So if if you accept based on the scientific evidence that first event occurred, then why would you be resisting the stuff you're reading about in the New Testament? And that was one of the ways that I kind of thought about this as I was moving forward. And it did open up possibilities for extra natural explanations. And then if you are open to those explanations, it turns out the Christian explanation for the resurrection is pretty straightforward. That's awesome. You say it's so much better than I do. Well, I mean, a lot of it is because, you know, I'm constantly saying it. So don't, don't credit me with any kind of wisdom here. It's just that if people ask you that question more than once, you're probably going to end up saying it the same after a while. So, so I, I think a lot of it is, but I, that's, but that is also one of the reasons why we as Christians, especially if we're raising young people, if we're in marriages where we've got young kids, um, our kids need to know these answers, because trust me, they're getting alternative explanations for the three most important questions of any worldview, which are, how do we get here? Why is it so messed up? And how do we fix it? Those three questions, every worldview attempts to answer. 
So it becomes an issue. Okay, so what? So tell me then, you know, how do we answer that? And by the way, you don't think that the uh, non-believing side has quick answers? Oh my goodness. They've got incredibly quick, brief answers that can be actually sketched into a meme, pushed out on Instagram and affect millions of people. Our answers need to be concise, need to be reasonable. So if you haven't started, like if you've got like kids who are in elementary school, you are very close to have, having to answer the most important questions kids will ever ask because they're not asking them in high school anymore. By the time they're in high school, for the most part, the statistics show they've already made up their mind about Christianity. They're making these decisions in the seventh and eighth grade. They're making these decisions probably about the end of the sixth grade. They're making these decisions the minute their friends or you have given them access to the uh, glowing rectangle. The minute you've done that, you've opened them up to all the skepticism and all the worldview explanations offered by non-Christians. So in the end, what we want to be able to do is say, well, yeah, you know, I'm going to practice these answers. I'm going to practice these answers two years before my kids ever have a question, because in the end, I'm going to have to answer these for my kids and as concisely and as deeply as they need me to answer them. And the first levels, you know, when you're 12, 13, 14 years old, may not be as deeply as they are when you're a senior in college. But I wanted to be able to answer those questions for my kids. And I will tell you that if, if your kids believe this is true, not because it works for them in a crisis in their lives, but because it is evidentially demonstrably true, well, then they can have a season of denying the existence of God or denying the truth of Christianity, but they are far more likely to come back to the truth if they see this truth like the truth of penicillin or the truth of whatever cure that we know cures whatever disease we have. It's a cure and it's objectively true. It's not a matter of my opinion. My opinion cannot make Jesus go away. It cannot make Jesus true. My opinion has no power on any of this because it's not grounded in Jim. It's grounded in it was Jesus who he said he was. And that we need to be able to demonstrate that for our kids. Absolutely. We were talking a while back and what you had mentioned was how important marriage is, not only for families and faith. And so you're shifting a little bit of your, your studies and mm-hmm. investigating. Tell us about how that's going and, and what your thoughts are about that. Well, I, I mean, I think that always that was... That was before I knew who God was. My God was marriage because my parents did not have a good marriage. And so I knew I wasn't, I was raised by myself. My dad remarried, but my mom never did. And it was just the two of us. It stunk. It was terrible. Um, Don't look back at those with fondly. And I just knew I did not want that for my own kids. Um, I always say this. I do a lot of weddings. And when I do weddings, I tell people uh, that you have to love. I love marriage more than I love my spouse. And if you are the kind of person who can take that mindset, then you'll end up having a great marriage because I don't want just a a dutiful, uh, pushing through and grin and bear it kind of marriage. I want the kind of marriage that is crazy over the top, the kind of thing that you write books and movies about. And it's because I love marriage that I want to do whatever I have to do to serve my wife to have that kind of marriage. So it turns out you could have a bad day with your spouse, but if you love marriage, you're going to push through and make that into a good day because in the end, the goal is this crazy marriage, not this crazy good marriage, not, not that you're having a good day that day with your spouse. You're, you're going to actually, if you are aiming at the larger thing, you can, uh, you can overlook a lot of stumbling around on the lesser things. And so the larger thing for me before I knew God was that marriage was really important to me. So I met my wife when we were in high school. We dated for about nine. We weren't married. We weren't um, believers for the first 18 years of our relationship. And then we both, now it's been 24 years since then. 
So we're at 42 years. And I'll tell you that if you think you, uh, those of us who are interested in making the case for Christianity, I think that would change. I think if Christians in the church understood the evidential case for Christianity, we'd see a much more robust, passionate, orthodox view of Christianity in our country. But if you want to change the culture faster and the church even faster, we've got to restore our um, view on marriage. Because even within the church, people who identify as Christians, but not necessarily even attend church or ever read their Bible, those types of Christians are about, they, they divorce at the same, about the same rate as the culture. But people who actually are biblically literate and hold a biblically informed Christian worldview as they identify as Christians, they divorce at a much, much lower, uh, lower rate than the non-Christian world. So it really comes down to is how committed are we to our Christian worldview and, how, and what, what do we think of marriage? And you will change the culture because you could look at the way the secularization of culture over the last 50 years, and you could definitely trace a parallel to the decrease of Christian belief in America. Like as Christianity declines, secularization clearly increases. But at the same time, you'll see that since the legalization of no-fault divorce, which happened in our state here in California under Ronald Reagan, believe it or not, he always regretted that decision. That really has changed everything, that we don't put a high priority on marriage anymore. I think this last year was the first year that the average age of women having children is now lower than the average age of women marrying for, uh, across, the, across the board. And I thought that's interesting, right? We, we, it's, people think that there's some, if we just live together, that's as good as marriage, isn't it? Actually, you know, it's not. <laughs> Statistically, it sh we show that it's not in a lot of different metrics. So I think that marriage is a high value. If nothing else, like if you said, well, marriage is just a matter of what your preferences are. I don't prefer marriage. Well, if you're having children, most of us would say, well, no, we love our children and we want certain good things in their lives. We want certain attributes mm -hmm. to emerge. Number one, we'd like to have them be as educated as they can be, maybe be as above the poverty line as they can be, to be as healthy as they can be, to be the most emotionally and mentally healthy as they could be. We want them to um, be the kind of people who spend less time in jail, less incarcerated, maybe a lower rate of teenage pregnancy. We, all these things we would say we would want that for, whether you're a believer or not, you probably want those attributes in the lives of your kids. Well, it turns out that all of those metrics, all of them are deeply impacted by how your kids are being raised. And all of them, kids do better in this really strange relationship, which is two biological parents in a low conflict marriage, a low conflict relationship. Now you could say, well, I can just kind of live together in that low conflict. Yes, but I'll tell you that we know statistically people are less likely to stay together long-term if they're in an unmarried household. Uh, that, that commitment of marriage that the legal commitment, at least in the past, where we've had this legal commitment that and increased the bonds, increased, you know, when divorcing was, you, you're going to have alimony issues, you're going to have all those. These things were incentives for people to stay together. If you're in a biblical marriage, your incentive is your creator who has created you for this purpose. You are not to be separated until death do you part. All of that uh, gives us incentive to, to work through the issues, not just leave the first time things get tough. And when your kids are in that kind of relationship, being raised by two biological parents who actually move through their issues in a low conflict setting, all the metrics favor child raising. So if you just said, I'm not sure I care about marriage so much, but you care about your kids, right? Well, then you ought to care about your marriage because it turns out you raise better kids if you care about your marriage. 
So I love that, love that term, low conflict. Yeah, well, it's not my term. It's just the term that, that sociologists try to explain. Because look, I was not raised in a two-parent, two biological parents in a low-conflict setting. My parents divorced, so I had one biological parent in a low-conflict setting, mostly low-conflict. Okay? <laughs> mostly low-conflict. Yeah, mostly low-conflict. Now, I raised my kids. I have two biological kids and two adopted kids. So my two adopted kids are not being raised by their biological parents in a low-conflict setting. This is better than they would have been where they were, but it's not ideal because ideal is two biologicals in a low-conflict setting. Now, what that means is that it creates certain criteria that most of the culture now is moving away from. So if you're in a same-sex marriage, you're not going to have two biological parents. And it turns out that that is so helpful in so many different ways. And I'll tell you why. Even abuse levels are lower in two biological parents in a low-complex setting because we are far more connected to our biological children, even if we don't know we are. Because some of your behavior is driven by, uh, by your biology. Some of your behavior to some small degree is driven by your genetic code. And so when we see that behavior in our kids, we kind of go like, oh, you know what? I get that because I was that way too. Like we'll often say to our spouses, oh, he gets that from you or she gets that from you. Well, why do we say that? Because we know that we are the two biological parents and it's easier to connect to even if you're not the biological parent, but you've had that child since they were, you know, preemie or had that child since they were, you know, born. Well, you know what? You still don't have the connection because it's, it's an under, a connection of understanding, right? That comes from sharing genetic code. And, and that's just part of something you can only do if you're, and not that you can't still have a great upbringing, but you'll have a statistically better upbringing if it's two biologicals in a low complex setting. Have you got any tips or thoughts for the guys that have been married for a while and then start to point fingers? Yeah. Hey, how, how's your marriage? Oh, it's a little rocky right now. She's whatever. She's yeah. difficult. She's challenging. She's got issues. And I'm like, it's interesting that I hear right off the bat, rough marriage. She I'm like, yeah, no, there's no, I mean, if you asked her, she'd say, yeah, rough marriage. He, so we have a tendency to do that. Right. But a lot of it is just stress. I mean, look, what made it easy for me before I became a Christian was the higher value of marriage than Susie loving marriage more than I love Susie that benefited her because I had this higher goal. Even if on that day I wasn't getting from Susie, what I thought I needed or wanted, I knew that marriage was something I should want and I needed. And that, so I would, I would just, so here's the rule I would say for people maybe who aren't Christians and that doesn't matter whether, I mean, Christianity helps loving God helps. <laughs> it just does. Because I will tell you that even statistically forget about Christians. Christians or non-Christians who are in relationships in which it's not a 50-50. So marriage is not 50-50. It's not. Good marriages are not defined that way. I have half my responsibility. She has half. I do half. We share the responsibility. Okay, great. But that's not what makes a great marriage. And they're not 100-100. Like where I say, oh, I want to give her 100%. I'm going to give her. No, no. It's 100 to zero. In other words, marriages in which each couple has no expectation of the other yet is willing to give their all for the other are crazy good marriages. In other words, I, you walk in and you say, well, look, I'm not going to complain if she's having a bad day today. I, I don't, I have a zero expectation. Now I'm going to treat her as though she is deserving of the best treatment I can give her. I'm going to give her a hundred and I'm going to expect zero. If you just do that for a little while, there'll be a competition 
between you and your wife as to who can give more with the least expectation, because it just draws out that 100 to zero relationship in your spouse. Now, one way that Christianity helps is, is that I realize that how I behave with my spouse, what I am willing to do for her is not between me and her. It's not. How I treat her is not between me and Susie. How I treat her is between me and God. Now, she might be saying something that I'm thinking, I want to say something like, but that's between me and God. How she treats me is not between me and her. That's between her and God. So I don't have like big expectations. That's not my issue. She can, she can say, no matter what she says, that's a burden that she has to carry because that's between her and God. But what I say in response, that's between me and God. And I am not going at the end of the day, have a, just another thing that I have to apologize to God about. <laughs> I got enough of those. Okay. I don't need another one from this conversation. And so I just have let go of all of that. It's that 100 percent with zero expectation that dynamic changes everything and it brings up now there's a guy named emmett er, um, eggerson he wrote a book about love and respect and you can if you yeah you know, yeah eggerson um eggerson yeah eggerson yeah so if you look at on right now media which is a streaming platform for bible curriculum which is really great by the way you should ask your church to get it if you don't have it already we, we did yeah let plug for right now media but his stuff's on there and you can watch it. And he describes this thing called the crazy cycle. And what he basically says is that in, I think it's in five, Ephesians 5.33, where Paul tells uh, men to love their wives and wives to respect their men. And this is two versions of the same affection that's shown in the other direction. So for women to receive affection is to receive it in the form of love. For men, they want res- uh, uh, affection in the form of respect. And what happens is, is that um, if a man feels like he's not being respected, his authority, his decisions, his, his ability to do whatever it is, there's kind of a command ability that he feels he, he shoulders for that event or that day or that incident, then he will react by feeling un- disrespected. He's going to react by being unloving. And then when she receives no love or the unloving attitude of her husband, she then further disrespects him. And this thing starts to loop until it's this crazy cycle of unloving behavior that is then disrespected back and forth. Well, how do you break the cycle? Is that regardless of what he does, if he is unloving, is you show him respect. And then you'll see that as a response, it might take a little while, but the same is true in reverse. If you feel like she's not respecting me, love her like she is. And you'll see something happen. When she feels loved, she will respect you. And this is how you break the crazy cycle. And the best, uh, it goes back to what I said earlier. It's that I don't care how she treats me. I have zero expectation. I know I am to treat her with love, regardless of what she's doing for or to me. I have to give her 100% expecting zero back. And that attitude produces an attitude in her in which we're now competing to outdo the other with the zero expectations of the other. And that, that's, that makes for crazy great relationships uh, and everything you could possibly think of. So again, what I, I think if, remember, you're not married to her. Okay, you are married to God and your responsibility is to God. It's a lot bigger than her. And in the end, because you will do this because you have a loving relationship, father-son relationship with God, you will end up with a great marriage without even trying. That is such a great point. Love and respect. When I really dove into that, just opened my, my mind up so much. I'm like, it's so, so yeah. simple. So simple. Because but here's what's res- also great about it is Ephesians 5.33. When Paul says this, he says this probably either as a widower or as a single man. Single either way, but either he has never been married 
there's some reason, you know, he's Pharisee or the Pharisees, usually you didn't get in that group unless you were married. So it's possible he was once married, but he even says in you know, his letters, if you don't you need to be married, don't get married. If you can't control your lust, then don't get, if you can control it, then you can serve God in a way that's really powerful. If you can't control it, then get married. So you're having a holy relationship for your intimacy. But the point he's trying to make here is that, you know, he doesn't seem like this guy who's a single guy is accurately nailing the relationship between men and women now. And he's doing that 2000 years ago. That to me is just striking because nothing about human nature has changed. And, and I love the scriptures because they actually describe the world, including the world of marriage, the way it really is. And so it's just comforting for me to see that this ancient book, this, and it's just in one verse that you're inclined to read over, but it, it describes the different forms of affection. And it, it, it actually, you know, now you got a guy, right, who in 2021 has written books and curriculum and all this. And it's like, oh my gosh, what a great idea. Well, Paul had that idea. And, and preached on it 2,000 years ago. And Paul didn't make any, any money from it, right? But, but it turns out he was spot on because he's speaking the words of God uh, in the text. So, And just knowing as a guy that if we get disrespected, just recognizing that that's a proven trigger. Yeah. Which then gives you an opportunity to choose your reaction or that's not right. reaction and or what have you. Your reaction is not between you and her. And so once you take her out of it, um, then you're, you're, and everything comes down to expectations. Think about it. If you, your joy factor is built into your pre, prior expectation factor. You go on a vacation and you're expecting the best weather and you get there and it rains and suddenly you're like bummed. But if you were expecting rain and you get one half day, a half sun, you're like going, woohoo, it's all about expectations. So it's, what do we expect from each other? And when I look at this marriage relationship as a chance to, to contribute, like we always think, well, how, how can I be a good citizen? I mean, some of us are actually voting because we feel like voting and probably read the politics, you know, the, the press every day, nitpicking every little political decision that's being made as though somehow that process is going to change the world. When in fact, if you wanted to have a personal impact on the world that is exponential, you do that through your single marriage, your single relationship now, and then all the kids, grandkids and great grandkids and great, great grandkids that emerge from that. And, and that's how you change culture. And we can control that every day. And I know people who are constantly bellyaching about politics and they're in marriage number three. And I'm thinking, right. really? Well, you better vote really well because you need to vote to make up for what you've been doing in your life, okay? Because you're, you're destroying the culture in your life. So maybe your votes can try to correct some of that. But the reality of it is, if you just prioritize this other thing, you will see you'll have a bigger impact on culture. Love the relationship with God, having the expectations from your wife out of it. She disrespects you. It's like you can be detached from it. And you spoke about that before being a homicide detective. You had to detach from certain things. And I believe in your world, uh, it's your family. You can be emotionally connected to and your dog. And outside yeah. of that, any of the stuff that you're dealing with. Yeah. Well, that's a bad thing. I mean, I think that really we're, we're called to do better than that as Christ followers, right? And it is hard to do that. But I mean, I think there's it's reasonable. And, and I think that Scripture speaks to this specifically, that there is a hierarchy of care that is to be in concern and compassion that is to be offered, and that the, the closest members of your personal family, I always call it what I call the um, proximity principle. What I mean is, um, if you're shooting at a target, you get 10 points for hitting the bullseye, and then you go out to the outer rings, and you're only getting about a, you know, a point and from 10 to one, depending on how close you are to the bullseye. And that bullseye really is a reflection of the people who know you. Uh, just look at it as an illustration of the people who know you 
and know the innermost you. Let's just say you had that bullseye, that target, and you placed in the bullseye, in the 10 ring, you placed all the people who know you the best. They've got a 10 level of information about you. And then as you move out from that 10 ring, right? If you hit the five, those may be people you work with or some friends you have, like your neighbors probably out there in the threes, the fours, maybe. People on social media are liking your ones, right? Because they don't really know the real you. We're all just marketing some version of ourselves on social media that's not really true. But the people who know every ugly thing about you, know what you do when you stub your toe, know how you talk when you're frustrated on vacation, um, know how you dress, know how indiscreet you are in certain settings. Those are the people who are probably number one, your spouse, who's listening to you every day, and your kids who are pretty much also living with you every day. Well, those are the people in your 10 ring and everybody else is outside that. What I find is fascinating is that we are way more willing to do for people in our one ring than we are for the people. in our. We don't hide anything from the people in our 10 ring. I mean, they get to see the ugliest version of us. You wouldn't even go outside looking like that to show that to the people in your ones. You certainly wouldn't put it on social media. You're going to look the best, dress the best, comb your hair, shave, do whatever you're going to do before complete strangers look at you. Meanwhile, for the people you allegedly love the most, you're not even willing to get dressed today. Okay. Now, my question for most of us is as men, are you willing to do for your tens what you've been doing every day for your ones? And until you're willing to flip that script and be the kind of person that, you know, I mean, I, there's stuff that I don't do in, around Susie. And I, I have been that way since we were dating. If I didn't do it the first week we were dating, I don't do it now. Um, I don't, this is what I wear when I'm home. I try to not to, I don't want to be in pajamas. I don't want to be looking like a bum. I wouldn't do that for people who are my threes and fours and ones. So why would I do that in front of my tens? Uh, I, I want to look the best I, I'm going to look and behave the best I'm going to behave. And like, look, granted, it's really hard because it's, this means you're on all the time. Yeah, that's what it means. And my trying to be on all the time is that gift I'm trying to give her. That's that giving her a hundred and expecting zero. But I don't care if she doesn't. I don't care. I just know that's between me and God. I'm called to do that and I'm just going to do it, but I'm not going to let her proximity to me mean that I can just be a, a jerk or, and, and listen, it's going to happen anyway, because you, it's hard to be on all the time and be, be, you know, act that way all the time. But, but it does strike me that we are willing. It used to be in the old days before we had cell phones, you couldn't see who was, you know, who was calling that we would be, you know, arguing about something and we're mad about something. And <laughs> someone would call and we go, hello, like, oh, we're so happy. So for that stranger, before you even knew who it was, you were willing to give them the best four words or, you know, four minutes of your day to the total stranger. No, no. That, that, we fall into that over, you wouldn't even done that the first year of marriage. But now you're in at 10 and you're thinking, yeah, don't need to, to, to be somebody I'm not anymore. Well, how about just changing who you are then? Because I don't think that your wife, I think your wife, all of us long for that person. And you always see that like in the long timeline of a marriage, right? You, you, you start with your marriage, you're dating, you love, that's just so awesome. There's something about this other person mm -hmm. you would die for. And by the time you're 10 years in, it seems like it's faded a little bit. Well, you know what's fading is because you let it fade. And how you don't let it fade is you, I, I have not stopped having this attitude and behaving this way in front of her at year 42, because I want this to be different. I want this to be, I don't, I don't want the end of it. When my spouse, when your spouse says, Hey, how is it being married to so-and-so? And your spouse says, yeah, it was okay. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I don't want that. I want them to say it was transformational. It was life-changing. It could not have been better. Isn't that what right. you want the people who know you best? I, I don't want a funeral with a bunch of strangers who, who make me sound better than I am. 
don't even need a funeral, really. Just just want the people who know me. A lot of people who write to me will say, I want to have a legacy marriage. Well, then be a legacy person. Be the kind of person that, that when your spouse thinks back about being married to you, there's no regrets and nothing they would change. And if you only have to do that for one person, and by the way, if you just do that for her, it'll trickle down to your kids. You don't have to, it all starts there. So I'm not saying you have to do this for everybody, but you're already right. kind of doing that for strangers now. So might as well do it for your wife. Yeah, absolutely. So my wife and I, we had, before we got engaged, we just talked about what our I- ideals right. of marriage were and different things. And both of us agreed that once we got married, we were never getting divorced. Good. And then we did get engaged and then we did get married and we reaffirmed that this absolutely, even though we're saying this oath at the wedding, like we're really meaning it and absolutely. And that having the kind of brick wall behind us instead of a back door to exit out of and run away from really was a key to our marriage and the conflict part where that comes up like, well, we're not going anywhere. So we got to figure this out somehow. So that one's, I think, a key. And then a second key is kind of like what you said, having your eyes on what the ultimate prize is down the road so that you can strive towards greatness as opposed to settling for everyday mediocrity. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, part of this is you say, okay, I don't, I want to, I want to have a marriage that never dissolves. And I want that too. And I also want to have an exceptional marriage that is a legacy to my own family. And a part of that was from my, my wanting to reverse the negative legacies of people not having that kind of marriage. So I wanted to put my foot in the sand and say, okay, this starting here, this is our family. Can't control all that stuff that preceded me, but I can control from this point going forward. Um, and so that commitment to wanting to do that was also helpful, right? Like you said, something that's bigger, that it, it acts as the, the, the kind of motivation because in the day, in the moment, you're going to have lots of days where you're wondering why I think this is so important. You know, uh, I mean, I can't tell you when people say, uh, oh, I'm starting a new blog on, on marriage or on parenting or on Christianity. Well, there's tons and tons of starters. Let's talk to me when you're 20 years into this project. And then we'll know that you were really committed to it, right? Because everyone's is, is rabid starters. We're not always rabid finishers, right? So I think a lot of it is, is what will help you get to the end rather than just have a dramatic beginning. And that's part of this, I think, is, and I think and you're pointing at eternity because you believe there is an eternity to point at. That's super helpful because now you're, now you're thinking beyond, well, what kind of 90 years am I going to have? Also, I think part of it too, is you got to remember that you're going to, part of aging well in a marriage and part of aging well as a human we say that expression, you know, aging well. There's, what's the, we always focus on the well part. Because what, part of the aging well is you got to recognize you are going to age. If you think that aging well means that in some sense you're not going to age. Oh, they are 70 and they look like they're 40. No. No, part of aging well is getting comfortable with aging. You're going to be at some point, you know, when you're 50, you're going to be bummed that you aren't 30 anymore. And when you're 60, you're going to be bummed that you weren't 50. Um, this is going to happen. And aging well is tr- trying to figure out is, could I be as happy with my 58-year-old bride as I was when she was my 15-year-old girlfriend? Uh, yeah. Yeah, you got to figure out how to do that and recognize that uh, when you hit 70, you're going to wish you were 58. 
So, so <laughs> let's, let's just be real about it. Right. And, and you have to get comfortable with aging. Uh, I think that a lot of men look and they think what is beautiful in a woman has something to do with physical age and appearance. And if that's where you are, then good luck with that. You'll, you'll never be, you'll never be in a long relationship. Um, and we have an advantage in some ways. It's not fair in culture, right? Because most old guys, because we are so focused on respect. Well, one of the things that can get you that kind of respect, even from women, is su- success and income and status, which usually is afforded to older people who have worked longer to get it. So older guys can now, yeah. what's, what, what is it that elevates a woman? They, she's things, am I lovely? <laughs> well, look, folks. There are some lovely, I'm here to tell you, uh, there are some lovely things in the 50s and 60s, and you just have to look for those and stop thinking that the only thing that could be lovely or could be worthy is your 20 or your 30-year-old self. No, that's not true. And, uh, but you have to get that, your, wrap your mind around that. Or again, if expectations lead to your happiness level. If your expectations are that, hey, I'm never going to like age. You could look at this. I'll just tell you now, you could, you could be the same dimensions as you are in your clothing. And it doesn't look the same anymore. Okay. When you're in your sixties, as it did when you were in your thirties, you can try all you want, but we are heading to the same place. Uh, Phil Robertson from Duck Dynasty, he's got a podcast called Unashamed. He always talks about this at 75. He says that, yes, for him, the resurrection is a looming mirror, right? (laughs) Yeah, it is for all of us. And you have to get comfortable with that in your marriage. That, that where you, so you have all those years of distraction. You know, I, I, we had kids through our late twenties, all the way through our mid fifties or so. And then they all grew up and moved out of the house. And now we're back to our, our single selves again. Uh, but we're now, you know, 35 years older. So you have your single self again, but you're not the same person you were 35 years ago. And so uh, you have to kind of see the beauty in who you are at that age, or you will not and this is why you see so many, you know, I'm always surprised. I think, why would somebody stay married for 35 years? And then once their kids are gone, they divorce. Well, you see this all the time. And it's because I think the struggle is, are you aging well? And that does not mean staying young longer. It means mm-hmm. getting old together well. And that's mm-hmm. something that we have to work on. So you started going into a little bit, you didn't use these words, but money, sex, and power. We had a podcast titled Money, Sex, and Power a while back. One, because the headline draws a crowd. Uh, but I know money, sex, and power is something you've talked about as well. What is that? How does that affect people and especially men? Well, it's the only three motives for misbehavior. So you learn this working cases. There is no fourth motive. These are all, everything comes down to that money, sex, and power. Power is the nuanced overarching one that envelops probably about 80% of motive. Um, and so, you know, power is, it can be a lot of different things in marriages. Um, these are the things that typically people will fight over, right? It's, it's going to be money, sex, and power. Uh, that love respect uh, aspect is in there between sex and power. Um, you know, a lot of that is kind of nuanced into those situations, but, but those are the things that, that marriages that people will argue about in their marriage. Those are the reasons why anyone commits a murder. Those are the reasons why any pastor or national figure falls. I mean, this is basically the, the motive behind all misbehavior. And what's great about it is once you know what motivates misbehavior, you know where to protect yourself. You know, I was a church leader for years. We pastored a church. And so what we said was, hey, here's how we're going to take advantage of, of knowing what causes people to fall. Number one, we're not taking any salary from the church. We're going to do this for free. 100% of tithes are going to go into 100% of donations into other nonprofits that need our help. So we weren't taking money. We, we, we also did not have a mortgage. We decided to blow out our garage and create a small church in our house. And we just met in our house, 50 people for six years. Now, the great thing about that was the money issue was removed. 
not going to get tempted by money here because there's no money coming to us. Number two, you do everything with your wife attached at your hips. You take out all of the sex issues. You're never alone. You never do one-on-ones. You have that Billy Graham rule, that Mike Pence rule. You kind of live by that. Number three is you take out the power issue by, you're only going to have a church of 50. And it's not, never going to grow. You're not going to allow it to grow. If it gets to 60, you got to take 10 and go launch another church of which you will have no say. That's not going to be your second church. No, that's going to be somebody else who has to lead that church because my church is never going to be more than 50. I'm going to limit the power I have. I'm not going to ever be a mega church pastor because we want to take those three things out. And when you take them out, you have the least amount of risk in uh, doing stupid things. All stupid is caused by those three things. <laughs> I don't disagree at all. Yeah, including all marital stupid is done by those three things too. So just yeah, so if you can just keep keep that at top of mind as you're filtering through life and making decisions, how is this going to affect my money, my you know, That's having right. sex and power? You know, is this elevating myself? And you're using 80% for power. Well, because everything's nuanced in crimes, for example, why does somebody go in and shoot 10 people in a Walmart who are a different skin color? Because I think that my skin color is better than yours. I think that my race is better than yours. I think that it's all power, pride. This is what John, 1 John 2 describes these three things. And that's the pride of life, right? So, you know, why does somebody who's an addict continue to steal from his parents or victimize his family and friends? Because he thinks that his joy of addiction is more important than your financial success or your property. Again, it's a power issue. It's I'm more important than you. <laughs> I mean, anytime you see that, that is a ton of crime. It's a ton of misbehavior. And usually in marriage, you can fight about money, but it's not like, you know, but you just see this, right? You see that one spouse will hide money from another. Mm -hmm. One spouse will be spending too much money. I mean, whatever it is. But the point is a lot of it comes down to power. How even I talk about this a lot in uh, my other work I do, which is I talk a lot about celebrity because a lot of us end up Christian community writing books and there's a certain form of celebrity, but celebrity is a subset of power and you have to be careful. It's an addiction. And what I've discovered is, that anytime you are starting to dip your toe into one of these three temptations, you will eventually hook the other two. So if you step, for example, into celebrity, well, now you have power and respect. And now suddenly women are interested in you because you have power and respect. And suddenly you're being paid more when you do speaking engagements because you are somebody of power and authority and you're now famous. Well, okay, there's the problem. We have to work actively to, to, to resist all three of these things. And typically, if you fall, well, somebody will say, well, they should have put some kind of an accountability partner with that dude so he wouldn't be hanging out with women. Or they should have put some kind of a limit on how much he could spend so that wouldn't have happened. But nobody ever says, well, they should have limited how well known he was. Nobody says that. In fact, they'll say, no, we want him to be famous so we can share the gospel more, whatever it is, right? So we look at that, that addiction, kind of like we look at workaholism. Like we don't want to hire an alcoholic or a gambler, but if you're a workaholic, you're hired <laughs> because if you're willing to work for free because you're just a workaholic, I'm going to hire you. Well, so we, there's an addiction problem there, but we look at it as a positive. And I think we look at this idea of chasing a uh, celebrity or at least being well-known so you can reach more people. We see this as a positive, but it's not. It's a negative because it opens the door to the other two. And I always see this, somebody will fall because they were the celebrity that then started to abuse the other two. And, and so again, if you don't have any of those, if you keep all those tamped down, you got lesser chance of abusing any one of those. That's great. When I was putting the podcast together, the artist came out with what we thought was going to be the final rendering of the, the logo. And it came back without my name on it. And the the podcast guys, like, I can't believe this. I'm going to go chew this artist up. And you know, he's, he's nah, terrible. I said, 
man, it came through me first before I threw it back to you. And I saw it without my name and I was so relieved. I never wanted my name on it in the first yeah. place. Well, you know, look at all the logos we have on YouTube, right? So I have a ton online and for years, the thumbnails were all, well, I, we were told, you know, we kind of look at how, like what thumbnails are likely to draw you to hit, click a link. And it's almost always the face of the speaker, some goofy expression, surrounded by a white line, some <laughs> bold colors. Da, 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 da. Well, we did a lot of that for years. Uh, just because this is we, this is what you do on YouTube, right? And I, right. Realized, I look at my YouTube channel; it's a thousand videos with my face on it. And I thought, mm, no, no. So we just started. We haven't removed it from the big banner yet. We have a new book coming out, so we'll probably put the book. So if we're saying, hey, we're excited about the contents of this book, which took two years to write, and we want you to learn what's in that book, that doesn't involve my face. It should not involve my face. So we can start to shift that. We have now just, I think we now have the first two playlists on our YouTube channel. We've gotten rid of all the face kind of thumbnails. But again, it's the same kind of thing. We're just trying to figure out how do we, and it really was after Robbie Zacharias fell that we started to rethink this as apologists, you know, my, my son and I. We were both doing this project and I thought, okay, so we, I told him, I said, we're taking our faces off this stuff. And he was fine with that. And um, so we started to, to do that, but you're, it's, it's a battle, right? Because people will actually write in the comment section. I want to know which of the two of you it is before I hit the play button. Like, <laughs> really? <laughs> so, so you can't win. Right. So no matter what you do, but the point is uh, from our perspective, we're just trying to take those small steps toward anonymity to where we elevate Jesus and the ideas that Jesus espoused and we kind of decrease our own, but we're in a culture right now that actually pushes back against this and wants an increase in celebrity. That's how desperate we are. We all know that there's something worth worshiping, but a lot of us will not admit that it's God and not another human. That's great. And you just said it right there was the world's pushing for something in this case, celebrity, my, my podcast coach, he's like, Hey, and he's, his reasoning was, well, everybody wants their name on it. Yeah. And I was like, well, I'm not everybody. And as Christians, we're told to live differently. Okay. So one of the things we said we would do is early on, as I said, okay, look, this is, we're not doing this for money. Now I do, I get paid to speak around the country. I do. And let me tell you how I, how I build that. I build that on, I ask myself, what is it going to cost you to get me away from my wife for one day? And that's how I set a value on it. I don't I try to do as much as I can on zoom, like this podcast yeah. stuff you do without any, uh, ex, you know, any cost to anybody because we're trying to remove the cost part of it. We did not start a 501 C three. I don't take any money from donations. I look at it like a commodity. If you want to buy a book, great. It's a transaction, but ideas that we try to present in article form and a podcast on videos every week, we don't want to monetize that if we can help it. What we're trying to do is try to break even on our web costs, which is hard because uh, it's so expensive. I don't know why it's so expensive to have a website these days, but it really is. Um, so anyway, that being said, what we're trying to do is just take the money side of it out um, again, because you're, why are we doing that? Well, couple of reasons. Number one, if I don't have a financial component in this, then I don't care how many people are visiting my pages. Like I, I do this and I produce, you know, we produce three pieces of content, three to five pieces of content a week on one website and one for police officers at a new website called the Thin Blue Life. So we just spend time on those creating that content. Well, why do we do that? Because there's nothing, no hope other than it's like the out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. I mean, I'm studying this stuff. I get geeked out. I get excited about it. I want to tell somebody. So it's like the part of my spiritual discipline is to create content that then people can read. Do I need to be monitored? No, I have a pension. 
I didn't do any of this until I had a secured pension. And then I said, okay, now we're in a position where we can contribute and we're not going to be tempted by that. And I don't really care because look, if at the end I needed to make a certain amount of money, well, then I got to go back and re-thumbnail that again. So it, it has the most celebrity value in a culture that's more likely to hit the, li the link if it's attached to a celebrity right. or attached to somebody who they even trust as an authority. I'm going to have to trust that whatever the topic is, that's compelling enough. And I'm, I'm just going to try to get invisible on it and uh, just trust that God will do what God will do. Now, is it going to affect the amount of clicks? It already has. I've already seen it. And uh, am I concerned about that? Not really. <laughs> because, <laughs> because in the end, I've seen it. I've seen what happens is that sadly, at some point, you are preaching the gospel to you are you know kind of growing a social media platform from which to preach a truth but then at some point it shifts where you're just preaching that truth so you can grow a, a social media platform and i just we can't be part of that second adventure so we have to really kind of limit how we approach it and that means that you won't be as effective as maybe the marketing the marketing folks would tell you yeah yeah so guys take from that put some safeguards up put some Put some guidelines, put some accountability, put some questions in your own head. You know, where's my motive on this? You know, ask God, but don't just wade into these waters and, uh, and have your eyes closed and find yourself in harm's way down the road. So true. So Jim, we always like to close off with a couple of things. One, have you got any thoughts, tips, advice, anything else you want to offer for the dads that are, that are part of this community and listening to this podcast? Yes, uh, I would say that if you're a dad listening to this, you know we we kind of assign our the formation of our kids to others. We get in the bad habit of doing that in America. We, you know, we're not worried about teaching our kids geometry. We've assigned that responsibility to their geometry teachers, and we're not doing that. And we also can assign our the spiritual formation of our kids to the youth pastor or the children's pastor who's working with your kids. The reality of it is that almost never turns out well. It's going to depend on somebody else other than you. Why mm -hmm. would you not take that over for yourself? Uh, and you might feel well, I'm under equipped. I can't, my, the pastor's better equipped. Get equipped. There's stuff that you're teaching your kids that you are the feel equipped to teach them about a bunch of nonsense. Um, if you're like a Packers fan, I, mean, I know Packers fans. I used to uh, do chapels for the Packers. And I'll tell you that the, these fans know every detail about what Aaron Rodgers is going to do this season. And, and you know, they, they're following it in minute detail. They could catch their kids up on all levels of information that is meaningless information that doesn't really matter. It's time to shift that. It's time to become, know enough about what you believe about God to help your kids. And don't assign that to your children's pastor. Don't assign that to your spouse. And now that's your responsibility. The, the connection and how people, how young men and young women receive the notion of a heavenly father is deeply connected to how they experience their earthly father. And so you have a duty to bring them up in a way that open, leaves the door open and guides them right to the, their heavenly father. And so I would say that, hey, don't assign that to somebody else. Take that responsibility on yourself. Oh, that's so good. So good. And I was planning on bringing up the fact that you also have kids books out there. Yeah, we, we thought that was the, you know, eight to 12. That's the age that the kids are making a decision. So we just made the trilogy of apologetics books that we wrote for adults. We just turned children's versions chapter by chapter. They match the adult book, but they solve mysteries. And so they, uh, kids love the mysteries. It, we sneak in the truth about Christianity sideways because we know that for the most part, uh, young people are motivated by what happens next, what happens next, like serial dramas. Right. So we wanted to kind of use that. And there's all kinds of activities online, printable activities, tons of worksheets, diplomas you can earn. And they're all at casemakersacademy.com. And all you do is buy the book. So all that other stuff is free. Like we're not trying to 
monetize that experience. We just, you buy the book. If you wait and get it cheap on Kindle, sometimes you can get it for a buck on Kindle, whatever you got to do, you know, get the book and then you're able to jump in and download the videos, the worksheets, the activity sheets, and the parent guides. So you can have conversations with your kids chapter by chapter. I thought that was so cool when I discovered those. John Maxwell talks about how he's not a teacher. He's a communicator because teachers take the simple and make it complex. Yeah. Communicators make the complex simple. That's very true. Yeah. We are translators. We're taking difficult philosophical and theological truths and we're translating them, not even for kids. We're translating them for each other because you're not going to get a paragraph on Twitter. You're going to get 280 characters. You got to figure out how do I take that complex thing? And you're not going to get a paragraph with the kid anymore. Uh, you're probably going to have to do this in short word pictures, uh, parables. Um, this is how Jesus communicated. He was using visual media before there was, uh, you know, video. Yeah. And he was using visual because he was making you think about the images in your head uh, as he was explaining them to you. So you were suddenly lost in the story about this vineyard. And, and sure enough, at the end, he pulls a rug out from under you and, okay, but well, you just learned it. There you go. That's the same principle in real life. And you're like going, dang. Yeah. Makes sense, right? So we have to learn how to do that with our kids. And a lot of that is part of just, and you already know that if you've got kids, because you've probably been doing it all along. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, your, your books just look like another great tool that I can use with them. So I'm excited to dig into those with them. Good. And then we always finish off with a challenge. Have you got a challenge that you'd like to throw out for the week? Yeah. Um, okay. Let me give you a challenge related to your marriage this week make a plan to get away with your wife. And when I say get away with your wife, I don't mean like just for a date, dates are good. But once every quarter, Susie and I would try to get away overnight. So that means you're going to have to have your in-laws or your parents watch the kids for one Friday night, you know, and, and you're going to take off Friday and or maybe it's just Saturday and you're going to be back by Sunday by noon. But what I've discovered is, and then when you make this plan, I want you to tell your bride about it about a month or six weeks in advance. So when you make that plan and it's elaborate, it's just a one night plan, right? And you're going to have 24 to 36 hours. If you just do that, you will see that number one, the five or six weeks before that event is coming, she's going to be anticipating the event. And it's great because it just makes things so much better for that period of anticipation before the trip. And we would find like day trips, you know, close to home, or we could get there and say three to four hours. Cause that three or four hour drive while you're by yourself and you're not with your kids is actually worth the price of admission. All right. Because you finally get a chance to talk without the interruptions. And then when you get there, you're alone for the whole night. And then you come back, but usually it's by about midday the next day, like we were ready to go back home. Like we were talking about the kids again, you know, that would slip back into our conversation. And then we're like ready to see him again, but setting that, that time and then putting it a month out or so, so that both of us, cause that means there are a couple of the events that are going to occur between now and then that usually would like cause you to lose hope. Well, you can kind of weather through them because you know, Hey, we're getting away in just a few weeks. You're getting away in just a few days. And then you finally do it. And, and then as soon as you can, you tell her, Hey, this is going to be regular. So I'll, I'll plan another one six weeks out from now or two months out from now. And if you'll do that, the challenge I have for you is that you have to date your entire marriage, especially when you're having kids, because that's the season in which you're each going to gain 25 pounds. You're going to start to see each other as mom and dad, rather than as boyfriend and girlfriend, because that's the way your kids have been talking about you right in front of you for this entire time. And you, if you have to trace back to that time, when later on you'll say, yeah, I guess we kind of got unattractive to each other emotionally, even, you know, emotionally and physically and uh, unattractive to each other. It probably happened in that period. 
you know, that period when you were distracted by kids and had to re-identify who you were in front of your kids. So here's the challenge. Don't let that happen. And that means that whatever you were doing in front of your spouse in the first week, let that be your guide. Whatever you would not do in front of her in the first week, let that be your guide and return to that. This You've been dating the whole time. If you'll just do that, when all those kids move out, oh, trust me, it's awesome because you are still the same couple, but now you have no distractions. And, and then if you want to have the, the, the years in your 50s and 60s that you could like say, wow, we're now, this is so awesome. Well, you get there by not letting that happen to you in the 30 years before that gets there. You get there by dating that entire time. And it's not just one night set. Those are good. Take some of those too. But it's really overnighters where you can get back and remember, remind yourselves why you started all this to begin with, you know, because you'll see when you're not with your kids, you actually end up slipping right back into the same people you were. If you don't let it go, if you don't neglect it too long, you'll find that this will remind you of why you got married in the first place. Wow. What a great challenge. And if you do that, your wife is going to absolutely lose her mind. Like you put her as a priority. You put it on the calendar. You did all the planning. You took all the stress and everything else out of it for her. Right. She gets to have, you know, this whole time where she can just think about whatever she wants to think about without the responsibility and all the things that mom gets burdened with. And we can just take that over for, for that one you know, night out that one 24 hours or 36 hours. Yeah. Wow. That's a game changer for a lot of marriages. I know. And uh, it is was for us. And I, and I'll definitely take that challenge. Okay, good. Uh, (laughs) Well, thank you so much for your time, Jim. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you, brother. This is the most important stuff we could talk about. It is. It sure is. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Journey of a Christian Dad podcast. Thank you guys for being a light. Shine that light out and let others see it. With you guys, part of this community, it helps me be accountable to you guys. It helps me be accountable to myself, be accountable to God and Jesus. I hope you appreciated this episode and picked up some great things. I hope you like the challenge and I hope you can execute on that challenge this week. I ask of you, please subscribe, share the show with others. Join us inside of the Journey of a Christian Dad on Facebook, inside our private community. Share that community with others. Have your buddies join. Have other dads that are looking to grow in their faith, grow as spiritual leaders of their family. As we engage in our journey and be intentional with it, we can help others grow theirs as well. We thank you again for listening. We thank you for all your reviews. Look forward to reading a review of yours on a future show. So, dear God, Thanks for blessing all of us, and thanks for drawing us closer to you. In your name we pray. Amen. Have fun, guys.